RC Top 3, a weekly podcast of the top three stories from Regnum Christi. An Epic Prayer for the Lenten Season by Melissa Gordon. In 2016, I piled into a hot, crowded bus in Krakow, Poland, with my then 16-year-old twins, Luke and Olivia, and our small youth group from St. Patrick's in Armonk. It was the first day of World Youth Week, and along with millions of others, we had set out to explore the incredible city and its many Catholic treasures. As we rode along, our tour group leader instructed us to find our rosaries so we could pray the Chaplet of Divine Mercy. I gave Father Gollins, our parish pastor at the time, a confused look. What was this prayer? Simultaneously, the kids shot me curious glances. Luckily, we were fast learners of this simple devotion. For the sake of his sorrowful passion, have mercy on us and the whole world. But where did the prayer come from, and what exactly did it mean? By the end of the week, I had met the great saint, Faustina Kowalska, 1905-1938, also known as the Secretary of Divine Mercy, and was introduced to her epic mission of spreading God's loving message of Divine Mercy, which is especially meaningful during Lent. God loves each one of us more than we can humanly understand. And because of His perfect love, no sin is too big for His mercy, if only we turn to Him in trust and repentance. As John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. As I learned on our pilgrimage, the Lord made it known to St. Faustina that the chaplet of divine mercy, taught to her by the Holy Trinity, was not just for her, but also the whole world. It is a mighty intercessory prayer, because we make it in union with the offering up of Christ's own body and blood, soul, and divinity at every Eucharist. And the Mass is the most powerful prayer on earth. Therefore, we can use the chaplet to open up the floodgates of God's mercy, so He can pour out His merciful love upon the world through His Son. And we can even get specific when we pray. We can ask for His merciful love over our children, friends, and family who have strayed, those who have died, the sick, the poor, the souls in purgatory, our priests, our politicians, the Pope, and even our enemies. So, using each bead of the rosary, we say, For the sake of His sorrowful passion, have mercy on, name of the person, and the whole world. And we allow that ocean of mercy to pour out. How amazing! It only takes about seven minutes to pray the entire chaplet. Consider saying it at 3 p.m. each day during the Lenten season to recall the hour of Christ's death on the cross. Excerpts of Jesus speaking to St. Faustina in her diary give great encouragement for making this devotional prayer a habit. Say unceasingly of the chaplet that I have taught you. Whoever will recite it will receive great mercy at the hour of death. Even if there were a sinner most hardened, if he were to recite this chaplet only once, he would receive grace for my infinite mercy. I desire that the whole world know my infinite mercy. I desire to grant unimaginable graces to those souls who trust in my mercy. Diary, number 687. Through the chaplet, you will obtain everything, if what you ask for is compatible with my will. Diary, number 1731. I was newly inspired to take up this prayer 
by a talk I heard given by Father Chris Aller, MIC, in which he said God existed outside of space and time. Therefore, a prayer we say today can help to save a soul who perished 10, 20, even hundreds of years ago. Because God knew in advance that you or I would one day intercede for that soul with our plea for mercy. Incredible. Today, we have so much to pray about. Consider using the gift God has given to us for these troubled times. This Lent, let's pray the chaplet for each other, our families, our country. Let's ask for mercy for the good thief hanging on a cross to the right of Jesus and the other thief hanging on a cross to the left of Jesus. For each man represents a piece of our very own broken hearts. May our love and repentance pierce open the heart of Jesus in mercy and forgiveness for ourselves and the whole world. One of the criminals who was hanging railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. O human souls, where are you going to hide on the day of God's anger? Take refuge now in the fount of God's mercy. Oh, what a great multitude of souls I see. They worship the divine mercy and will be singing the hymn of praise for all eternity. Diary number 848 Six Lenten Resolutions for Your Marriage by Holly Gustafson Lent is fast approaching, and if you're like me, you've already been wondering about how God might be calling you to sacrifice, pray, and give this year. I still haven't made a final decision, but I do know one thing. My Lenten resolution this year will be oriented towards my vocation to marriage. After all, isn't Lent about drawing closer to God, making myself more available to an encounter with Him, and growing in holiness? And isn't my specific vocation, the vocation to married life, the particular path He has chosen for me to learn to love and serve Him? Why not live Lent this year by sacrificing, praying, and giving within and through this vocation to holiness and love. Here are some ideas to get you thinking about how to include your marriage vocation in your Lenten journey this year. 1. Speak your spouse's love language. Identify which of the five love languages through which your spouse best hears and receives love, and act on it every day. For example, if your spouse's love language is quality time, you might sacrifice some of the me-time you relish at the end of the day to spend time with your spouse instead. If it's acts of service that communicate love to your spouse, you might take on an unpleasant daily chore that you are normally happy to delegate. If your spouse hears love through words of affirmation, you could fast from criticism and focus on the things about your spouse that you are grateful for instead. If their love language is receiving gifts, you might fast from specialty coffees or lunches out and use the money you saved to purchase something special for your spouse. If they receive love through physical touch, your spouse probably won't object to daily foot massages 
or back scratches at the end of the night. 2. Perform a daily sacrifice for your spouse. If the love languages aren't your thing, any act of love will do. Be the first one out of bed to wake the kids for school or put the coffee on. Be the one to get up with the toddler who has trouble sleeping through the night. Be the one who always shovels the sidewalk. Here in Canada, we'll still have snow all through Lent and possibly into Easter. Be constantly attentive to your spouse's needs, asking yourself what sacrifice you can make that would ease his or her burden and show them love. 3. Fast from a time-wasting habit. Is there a habit that you've grown accustomed to that, if you gave it up, would give you more time to spend with or serve your spouse? Maybe you press snooze on your alarm clock while you could be getting up with your spouse and enjoying a quiet coffee before the busyness of the day begins. Perhaps you spend too much time scrolling through social media feeds, reading articles, or playing games on your phone. Could you fast from your favorite app, making yourself more available to your spouse? Could you give up your phone completely in your spouse's presence, fasting from checking texts or mindlessly scrolling anytime you are with them? Could you fast from using your phone in bed? 4. Give up that annoying habit. Is there something you do that you're aware bothers your spouse, or a habit you have that you know they don't love? Maybe you leave your clothes on the floor instead of putting them in the hamper. Maybe you make having a conversation difficult by immediately getting defensive or taking things too personally. Maybe you are always late. Fast from that behavior that you're attached to, that you know annoys your spouse. And while you're at it, fast from criticizing or complaining, even interiorly, about an annoying habit of theirs. 5. Pray more for your spouse. Lent is a time to deepen our prayer life, so why not use this period to develop or strengthen the habit of praying for your spouse? You might decide to wake up 15 minutes earlier and use the extra time to pray specifically for your marriage and the intentions of your spouse. If you're not in the habit of praying a daily rosary, start now, offering each decade for a different need or aspect of your marriage. Or end the day with a prayer of gratitude for your spouse, your marriage, and your vocation to the married life. 6. Examine your conscience as a spouse. If you're already in the habit of performing an examination of conscience at the end of the night, be sure to add an evaluation of how well you lived your vocation to the married life that day. If you've struggled to build the habit of a daily examination of conscience into your prayer life, Lent is the time to do it. Ask yourself, how well did I live out my vocation as spouse today? How did I show love and service to my spouse? And how did I fail to love and to serve? Thank God for the call to married life and ask for His help and grace that tomorrow you may better live out this ministry of love to which you were called. Whatever you decide to do this year, whether it's to give up chocolate or chips or Netflix, consider offering your Lenten sacrifice for your spouse, for their intentions, and for the specific needs of your relationship, and see how 40 days can transform your marriage. Happy Lenten journey. Second Ancient Synagogue Found in Magdala On December 12, 2021, the Israel Antiquities Authority, together with the company YG Contractual, 
and the University of Haifa, announced the discovery of a second synagogue in the western sector of the ancient town of Magdala. The second synagogue dates from the Second Temple period and was located in the same Magdala settlement, just 160 meters from the first synagogue discovered in 2009. Marcela Zapata Mesa, director for the Center of Research in Ancient Cultures of the Anahuac University, has also been director of the Magdala Archaeological Project since 2010. From 2009 to 2019, a first-century synagogue, the Magdala Stone, the Market, the ritual purification baths, domestic spaces, and the port have been discovered. These discoveries have shed light on Jewish history from the time of Jesus. We talked to Marcella about this new finding. For the first time in the history of biblical archaeology, two synagogues have been discovered in the same settlement. Does this imply a change in the idea people have regarding the religious and social life of the Jews of that period? It confirms what is found already in some written sources, since it can be read that in large towns and cities it is common to find two synagogues. For example, in Acts chapter 24, verse 12, They did not find me disputing with anyone in the temple, or stirring up a crowd, either in the synagogues or throughout the city. Or, Acts chapter 13, verse 5, When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had John also to assist them. The settlement of Magdala is today the only place of the Second Temple period where the textual evidence of the above-mentioned historic sources is scientifically proven. In religious and social terms, the discovery of the Second Synagogue only reaffirms what we already knew from the archaeological materials recovered in the various excavated areas. The inhabitants of Magdala were Jews, observant of their laws and traditions. Based on the extraordinary and unique finds at Magdala to date, do you think Magdala could have been a different settlement from the cities around it? I believe that Magdala is a unique settlement in many aspects, religious, economic, and cultural. From a religious perspective, the city has two synagogues, one of them richly decorated in the Herodian style, the Magdala Stone, and four ritual purification baths, Mikwaot. In terms of economy, the city possessed a large port, with most of it yet to be excavated. But today we know that the basis of the economy was fishing. In the market, we have discovered evidence of activities related to the production of pigments, possibly used to make medicinal and cosmetic ointments. Magdala itself is a unique settlement in relation to other contemporary towns and villages in time and space. How do you think these archaeological discoveries enrich the idea of Magdala as a meeting place between Jewish and Christian history. They enrich the idea of Magdala. They help to understand Jewish life in Galilee in the first century, and this continues to provide data to understand the life of the first Christians and the relationship with Judaism in this period. How has directing the Magdala archaeological project changed your life? Magdala has changed my life. It has become the project of my life. I have matured as an archaeologist and as a person. It has given me the opportunity to meet extraordinary people who are now family, and extraordinary researchers from whom I have learned and will continue to learn. I cannot conceive my life without Magdala. For more resources, visit www.regnumchristi.org or download the Regnum Christi English app today.